Welcome to the second season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. William Scott Smith was born in 1960 and lived in Oregon. By 18, he was racking up criminal charges. He was arrested and convicted of stealing a baseball hat and in a burglary stole 26 cases of beer from a grocery store. He received convictions for a second-degree burglary and driving while his license was suspended. At 19, he and another man were charged with second-degree sexual abuse involving an 18-year-old, but William was acquitted. Sherry Ireley lived in Salem her whole life, and at 18 had lived a very different life from William. Today, Salem has a population of 180,000, but back in 1982, it was a small city with only 80,000. Sherry was an only child with a slim five-foot frame and 100 pounds. She had piercing blue eyes, a beautiful smile, and shoulder-length brown hair perfectly flipped back. Who can forget the 80s feathered haircut that Farrah Fawcett made famous? Sherry was excited to be graduating high school and had plans to go to college in the fall. But in the meantime, she moved into an apartment with her cousin Cindy and got a part-time job at Domino's delivering pizzas, mostly during the afternoon and evening shifts. Sherry's mom, Linda, was concerned about her daughter's safety, but was told Domino's policy was to check all delivery orders by phoning the number back. On July 4, 1982, Sherry and her family had just returned from a week-long vacation in California when she was called in to work to replace another employee. It was a Sunday evening shift. She dressed in blue jeans, jogging shoes, a red and white and blue domino shirt, and her company hat. Meanwhile, William was hanging out with Roger Nozef, and the two came up with a plan to kidnap a young pizza girl and hold her for a ransom. The Statesman Journal reported that at 9.05 p.m. that night, Roger used a payphone and called the Dominoes in Salem. In the background, the Dominoes worker could hear two men discussing what kind of pizza to order. They seemed familiar with the options and settled on one called the Destroyers. Roger asked for the girl with the orange Volkswagen, as she had delivered pizza to them before. Then he gave a fictitious address and the phone number to a local motel. This was before phones had called display, and Domino's policy was to call the phone number back. But this time, they didn't. And the delivery area? It was outside their normal area. But it had been a quiet night, so they decided to do it. Domino's did not honor requests for a particular driver. The girl with the orange Volkswagen wasn't working that night. It was Sherry and another male driver. It was Sherry's turn, and she put the pizzas in the Domino's delivery car and at 9.40 p.m. drove off to Riverhaven Drive South. The sun had set as she drove through the dark roads to an isolated area on the outskirts of Salem. She was trying to find the address when Roger and William spotted her and flagged her down. She stopped the car, left it running with the headlights on, and got out and grabbed the pizzas. 
Roger and William grabbed her. There was a short struggle, but they overpowered her and threw her in their truck. They headed down the road when Roger announced they'd taken the wrong girl. William replied, it was too late. They pulled over near the Little Pudding River, and William wrapped his big strong hands around her small neck and strangled Sherry, then threw her body into the river. At 10.13 p.m., a neighbor driving by spotted her car, still running with the lights on and the driver's door open and knew something was wrong, and drove off to the nearest convenience store and called police. Meanwhile, another neighbor was returning home with his two young sons after watching fireworks nearby, and he spotted the car. And he too knew something was terribly wrong and rushed home and called police. Authorities arrived and spotted the pizza boxes strewn about on the ground and scuff marks in the gravel by the car and suspected foul play. Early the next morning, deputies combed the area looking for Sherry and any clues. They searched the gravel road where her car had been found and along the sides of the road that were covered in tall grass and blackberry bushes. They discovered her Domino's hat about 500 feet from the car. After their search was completed, friends, relatives, and volunteers took over the search. Detectives asked the public to be on the lookout for two vehicles that had been spotted in the area Sunday night. One was a 1973 or 74 dark-colored Monte Carlo. The other was a 1950s to 60s lime green four-wheel drive pickup with mag wheels and a roll bar that may have had lights mounted on it. They described Sherry and added that she had a one-inch scar on her right eyebrow, another on her chin, and an eight-inch scar on her lower spine. She also had a tattoo on her hand with the initials TB. That day, Roger phoned Domino's and demanded a $50,000 ransom for her return. But he never called back, and he never got the money. Steve and Linda thought Domino's was taking care of their daughter's safety by verifying orders by returning phone calls, but it turns out that Domino's didn't do it for every order. In fact, Salem franchise owner Mike Wise later admitted they only did it 5-10% to 10 of the time. No fingerprints or evidence were found in the car and it was returned to Domino's. On Tuesday, the search continued for Sherry with the help of a professional dog handler. Her family hired a dowser, a person who uses a divining rod to locate water, gems, or grave sites. It had now been three days since Sherry disappeared, and her family was desperate to find her, and hired a second dowser. And a reward was established for her information leading to the arrest and conviction of those responsible for her abduction. Her grandfather contributed $1,000, a nephew $5,000, and it soon grew to $8,000. Detectives conducted interviews, the sheriffs searched the Willamette River, dowsers and a psychic were used. All failed to produce any leads. Three weeks after her disappearance, the reward increased to $20,000, plus a $10,000 reward for anyone who helped locate her. Seven weeks after Sherry's abduction, detectives interviewed 30-year-old Daryl Wilson at his home in Salem. In a twist, a young nine-year-old girl named Daniel Good had also mysteriously disappeared, and Daryl knew both Sherry and Danielle. Detectives had talked to him numerous times already in their investigation. 
He had given an alibi that he was camping with friends the night Sherry was abducted, but they discovered that he left the camp for nine hours and considered him a prime suspect. Daryl lived in an apartment behind a main house, and at 9 a.m., the detective, along with a psychic hired by Sherry's family, talked to Daryl briefly for about five minutes. Daryl, a truck driver, was also the owner of a lime green pickup truck, the very one detectives had been searching for. A week after his truck description was released to the media, he painted it brown, but a witness had provided a partial license plate, and it matched. By 3.30 that afternoon, Daryl was dead. He finished a cup of coffee, left the breakfast he was preparing, and walked out the door. He went in the side door of the main house that was left open for him to use the laundry, and in the stairwell, he strung a rope up and hung himself. He did not leave a suicide note. And Sherry's case went cold. In February 1984, it had been 20 months since her abduction, when it happened again. Rebecca Darling had lived her whole life in Salem, now living with her boyfriend Monty Gilson. She was 21 and a tall, slim girl, 5 foot 10 and 160 pounds, with long brown hair and brown eyes and enjoyed fitness classes. Her boyfriend worked at a Circle K store, but they needed two incomes, so Rebecca took a job working the graveyard shift at another Circle K but she was uneasy about working alone at night. Five months into her new job, on February 21st, they were both working the night shift. Rebecca dressed in white bib overalls, a white shirt with Circle K on the front, and tennis shoes. She wasn't scheduled to work that night, but had switched shifts with another worker. It was a normal night, that is, until sometime between 3.20 and 3.50 a.m. when William walked in. At trial, it was revealed that he carried Rebecca from the store without much of a struggle. At 3.50 a.m., a customer walked in and found it empty and called police. They arrived and found her purse, car keys, and coat in the store, and her car still in the parking lot. William drove Rebecca to the house nearby where he lived with his parents. They were out of town. He tied her up and sexually assaulted her then tied her hands behind her back with a cotton rope, then wrapped the rope around her neck three times and strangled her. He drove her body to a bridge over the Little Pudding River and dumped her in the water. On Sunday, March 25th, it had been almost five weeks since Rebecca was abducted. A farmer tending to his cows discovered her badly decomposed body tangled in brush along the Little Pudding River. 200 feet downstream from the bridge where she'd been discarded. Nearby, 18-year-old Catherine Redmond, known as Katie, was a freshman student at Willamette University in Salem. She was 5'6", with brown wavy hair and brown eyes. April 7th, it was a Saturday night, and Katie was going to a campus fraternity party. She dressed in long shorts, a white blouse, and a jean jacket, and borrowed her friend's dad's green Datsun to go to the party. At 2 a.m., she left to go for a drive. She was alone, and it was raining. A couple hours later, the Datsun was spotted, sitting in an intersection on State Street, its engine running, windshield wipers going back and forth. The driver's door was slightly open with her purse still inside. Katie was gone. 
No one knows exactly what happened, but it's thought that William used his station wagon to bump her car, and that he abducted her, sexually assaulted her, and threw her body into a wooded area just off the road. Investigators searched the intersection for clues. There were no signs of a struggle. Other than a single shoe found a half mile from her car, it was like she had vanished into thin air. Police asked Katie's roommate to look at the car, and she noticed two things. One was a paper bag from a Circle Case store. The second was a dent in the rear bumper. In the Circle K bag, police found a receipt and verified that she had purchased candy around 2.30 a.m. And that shoe? Police determined it belonged to Katie. Police did not see a connection between Katie's case and other missing women cases in the area, and officers in Washington were looking into Salem's missing women to see if they were linked to the Green River murders. Police later received witness reports of a station wagon in a ditch off of State Street around 4 a.m. Three days after Katie's abduction, a woman contacted police to say that her car had been stopped at a red light that night when a station wagon slowly bumped into her. She put on the brake and noticed the driver, a large, heavy-set man, approaching her car. She stayed in the driver's seat and told him to meet her at a gas station two blocks up the road. She drove to the gas station and he followed, but he did not pull in and drove right past her. Police examined her car and discovered the dent matched the one on the Datsun. Police then contacted tow truck companies and hit pay dirt when they contacted Tim Hall at Wilts Towing. Not only had he towed it, but he delivered it to the driver's house and was paid by check. That driver was identified as William Scott Smith. He was now 24 years old, 6 foot 2 and 300 pounds, an unemployed truck driver living with his parents. Katie's shoe had been found just 40 feet from where William's car had gone into the ditch. Police quietly put William under 24-hour surveillance and that evening interviewed him. They noticed scratches on his chest and two bite marks on his right arm. They seized his station wagon and requested search warrants for his home and to photograph the bite wounds. That evening, Katie was found. The Albany Democrat Herald reported that she was less than half a mile from her car. Her naked body was discovered by a police officer searching in a wooded, bushy area several hundred feet off the road. The isolated area was hidden from the roadway and strewn with prickly blackberry bushes. She lay face down in the mud, her clothes twenty feet away. Spring had just sprung and the nights were still cool. Katie's body lay overnight in the cold outdoors. At sunlight, officers gathered to collect evidence, and just after noon, her body was removed. A task force of 19 officers was formed from the Oregon State Police, the Salem Police Department, and the Marion County Sheriff's Office. They now had six unsolved cases of women who disappeared or been murdered in the last three years. Before long, the task force would grow to 40 members. The flags at Katie's campus flew at half-mast, a solemn recognition of her passing. A week after Katie's murder, the World Newspaper in Oregon reported that Marion County District Attorney Michael Brown ruled out any connection between the Salem murders and the Green River killings. 
He said that police were looking for a vehicle, an American-made station wagon that may be gray, green, or blue, built in the 1960s or early 70s, and that they had already questioned the owner of the car. They released a photo of the station wagon and added that if anyone had been bumped by such a vehicle to give police a call, things were starting to fall into place. On April 23rd, William was arrested for making harassing and obscene phone calls to a 20-year-old woman after she had the telephone company put a trace on her phone. Police then revealed publicly that he was also the leading suspect in Katie's murder. In court, he pled guilty to the calls and the judge ordered him to jail. Court records revealed that on the day police interviewed William, he didn't tell them anything. The next day, his girlfriend and parents visited him. He met first with his girlfriend and confessed to her that he killed Katie. Then he confessed to his mother, and during that time, his father entered the room and urged him to confess to the police. He agreed, if they agreed not to charge him for a robbery in Washington. The district attorney agreed, and William confessed. Soon after, he also confessed to Rebecca's murder and was charged with two counts of aggravated murder. William's lawyer moved to have the confession suppressed, but it was denied by the judge. He pled innocent, but in a rare move, his defense used a trial by stipulation, where the prosecution presented their case in writing, summarizing the evidence that would be presented at trial, and that William maintained his right to appeal the decision not to suppress his confessions. A dentist confirmed that the bite mark impressions from William appeared to match the bite wounds on Katie. However, in Rebecca's case, they had no evidence. A psychiatrist described him as a sexually sadistic serial killer. On July 9th, Williams was found guilty and sentenced to two consecutive life sentences with a mandatory minimum of 40 years before being eligible for parole. His lawyers appealed, based on the judge's denial to suppress the confessions. In March 1985, the Oregon Court of Appeals upheld his two murder convictions. An appeal was then filed with the Oregon Supreme Court, but they refused to review it. But this story doesn't end here. In 2004, the Marion County Sheriff's Office formed a cold case squad, made up of four retired members from Sheriff's Offices, the police, and FBI. Members donate their time, and a year later, they took a look at Sherry Ireley's abduction and its similarity to Rebecca and Kate's murders. They took another look at William's alibi, in which he claimed he was on a long-haul driving job, and discovered that police had actually pulled him over on the day Sherry was abducted in Silverton, only 14 miles from Salem. They questioned William, and he confessed to kidnapping and murdering Sherry, his accomplice, Roger Nosef, had died in 2003. On December 18, 2007, William pled guilty to Sherry's murder in court and received a third life sentence. Searchers combed the Pudding River, but severe flooding over the years hampered their efforts and they did not find Sherry. She is remembered with a memorial built at the spot where her car was found. Then, in January 2012, another cold case squad was formed at the Salem Police Department. They revisited the case of Terry Monroe, who was murdered in 1981. 
She was 21 and lived with her boyfriend Mark Johnson and his family. She was tall and slim with long blonde hair and blue eyes. In February, one night after working at a shoe store, she left her car in the parking lot and went out with co-workers and friends to a tavern. Later in the evening, she left her glasses at the table and went outside to get some fresh air. She walked out the door and never returned. At 3 a.m., her friends called Mark's house looking for her, but no one heard the phone ring. When Mark's sister arrived at work the next morning, the same shoe store where Terry worked, she wasn't there, but her car was still in the parking lot. She knew something was wrong and called police. Her jeans and identification were found near the Willamette River behind the tavern, and a search of the water was done. A month later, her body was found. Her bra and shirt had been used to strangle her. An investigator from the Cold Case team spoke with a cellmate of Williams and discovered he had talked about killing Terry in prison. They interviewed William, who then confessed. In October, he pled guilty and was sentenced to life in prison for the fourth time. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Adrian Shelley, a true New Yorker all the way. She was tenacious, quick, and witty. Greenwich Village fed her artistic soul, but her talents for writing, acting, and directing could never have predicted the plot that would end her life. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers. <laughs>